0: today we are coming in for a landing. We are bringing home the series that we've been in for the last few weeks, Asking for a Friend. As throughout this series we have been looking at the hard questions, some of the big questions that people ask of the Christian faith. Skeptics outside the faith, people who are not yet followers of Christ necessarily, but also those of us who are followers of Christ and if you've got your program, go ahead and open up to the notes page. I want you to, rem- to remember, I want to remind you that this entire series has been kind of anchored in that, that charge, that command of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where the Bible says, always, always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you To give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and with respect. So, as a follower of Christ, we are commanded, we are charged by God Himself to always, say always, always always be prepared to give an answer, that we're always ready to explain not only that we believe, not only what we believe, but it says to give the reason for the hope that you have. Be able to explain why you believe what you believe. And I don't know that we necessarily have saved the best for the last in this message, but I believe with everything I have, we have definitely saved the hardest for the last, maybe the the biggest for the last, The question that we're taking up today as we ask for a friend one more time this week is why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? This is a question that has been presented not only to Christianity, but to every major world religion, every belief system, every worldview that is out there. But it's one that is particularly tough for the Christian faith. And the question usually goes something along these lines. If God is all powerful, and he is, and God is all good, he is all loving, and he is, then how could he allow the suffering, the injustice? Where is God when all of the natural disasters, the genocide, the Holocaust that have marked human history as long as humans have populated the earth? Where is God when all of this stuff is going on? It's a hard, hard question. John Stott was one of the great minds and thinkers of the 20th century as a Christian theologian and philosopher. Time magazine actually named him one of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century. I think we have a picture of John. I'm so, don't you wish you knew him? He passed away sadly a few years ago, but. That looks like a nice guy, doesn't it? Here's what Stott, this great philosophical theologian, said about this question. He said, The fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Now, that's what Stott said. Stott, who spent decades studying theology, studying philosophy. And so you and I are going to solve this problem in the next 30 minutes. <laughs> but I think right up front, we have to recognize a couple of different planes on which this question functions. And and I, I want to ask you to t- kind of bear with me for a second, because I'm, I'm going to try not to, but I, I think for, for a second, this is going to feel like it's almost kind of academic or philosophical, in a classroom, in nature, and that's not where we're going to land, but I think we've got to go through that. We've got to wade through that a little bit because the reality is that the Christian faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, includes and transcends the philosophical down to the personal. Because it's one thing to ask the question, why does God allow suffering? But it is entirely another to ask, why am I suffering? Why, why in this moment, maybe, why do I hurt so badly I can't even get out of bed? That's a very different question, but it is all rooted, the answer is all rooted in the same thing. Now, now very quickly, I want to just kind of go through and highlight some of the different perspectives that are out there on the issue of suffering. Suffering in, in different worldviews. In the Jewish world, tradition, the worldview of Judaism, suffering is used for punishment and purification. This is consistent with what we read in the Old Testament, that God used suffering of his people Israel to draw them back into a right covenant, into a right relationship with himself, and that through their suffering, their faith was actually purified. That's the the Jewish perspective, and of the different worldviews, the closest one to the Christian perspective. But there are some distinctions, as we'll see in just a second. The worldview of Buddhism says that suffering is inevitable in life. Buddhism says that suffering is the result of unfulfilled desires. Our unfulfilled desires, the, the original Buddha himself, the enlightened one, that's what the word Buddha means, was actually a nobleman born into Indian aristocracy and, as such, spent his childhood in the palace. But upon venturing outside the palace walls, he witnessed the suffering and the injustice of humanity and, and began to question existence. And it was through that experience that he started to seek enlightenment. And in the Buddhist perspective, once we achieve complete enlightenment, then we escape the pull of our earthly desires and therefore we escape suffering. That's the Buddhist perspective. Hinduism says that suffering is our fate or our fault even. This is the result of karma. Karma says that this is just fate that will happen or it might even be the result of not achieving enlightenment in past lives. So suffering is our fate or our fault. Islam teaches that suffering is a test, that through suffering, the follower of Allah will reveal the purity of his or her faith in Allah. It is a test. Atheism or secular humanism, the the dominant religion of our world, says that suffering is pointless because according to atheism and secular humanism, there is no transcendent truth, there is no God, who is the moral arbiter of the universe and therefore humanity. So any suffering that we experience in this life is essentially pointless and to be avoided at all costs. Now, let me quickly say that as we go down this list, there are strains within each of those worldviews that might vary slightly. I, I recognize that, but I think these summaries capture the essence of how those different worldviews deal with the subject of suffering. And I also think it's for that reason that Christianity particularly stands out. It's interesting because most people, especially of an atheist bent, would tell you that suffering actually proves the absence of God. The atheist would say, well, if God is good and he's all-powerful, then there shouldn't be any suffering in the world at all, which is a fascinating perspective. And it was the very perspective that Christian theologian and philosopher C.S. Lewis said kept him away from the Christian faith for most of his adult life. But as he pursued that strain of thought even further, he realized that that view is actually a moral claim in itself. To say that, God must not be good because he allows suffering, is a claim to morality. That's, that's a judgment call in the eyes of the atheist. And Lewis reasoned and logic his way through that to say, well, then where did that sense of morality come from? I mean, no one, no one could look at the abuse of an innocent child at the Holocaust and say that that's just natural selection taking over. There, there's something within all of us that, that recoils in horror, that, that says that is wrong, that that is not right. Lewis uses the illustration of children on the playground. How many of you remember playing on the playground? Can I just see a show of hands? Do you remember going out for recess? Remember when we had recess because nobody sued the school districts? Well, <laughs> back when that used to happen, the playground was a great place. The playground used to be a place where, where kids learned how to interact in society. But because, you know, people didn't put up with a jerk. People didn't. They, and and if, if someone came to you on the playground and, and just out of nowhere punched you in the nose, there was something inside of you that said, that's not fair. That, that's not fair right. And Lewis goes on to say that, by the way, you're exactly right about that. It's not fair and it's not right. But where does your sense of fairness come from? Where does your sense, my sense of right and wrong come from if it's not baked into us by our creator? It's this sense of justice that ultimately points us to God and not away from God. And it is for that reason that Jesus transcends the philosophical questions about suffering and and makes it incredibly personal. Here's what Christianity, thank you, here's what Christianity claims about suffering. Jesus says, I am with you and will use it. Jesus says, I am with you in your suffering and I will use your suffering. I will draw purpose out of what seems purposeless. I I will make this count for my glory and for your good. That's a staggering claim that none of the other worldviews even attempt. The other worldviews, as I said, Judaism is the closest in that it says it is for punishment and for purification. It is to draw us back to God the Father, but even in Judaism, we see the doctrine of suffering. We see this perspective on suffering falling short of saying, I am in it with you. Jesus says, I am with you. One of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. And so when we suffer, when we hurt, we know two things. Number one, we know that we're not alone. We, we are not alone in our suffering. And number two, Jesus tells us that we're not crazy. This is not a figment of our imaginations. It's not just because we have unfulfilled desires, that suffering is actually real. And we don't go through it alone. As a matter of fact, that's what the incarnation means. The fact that God became man, the Spirit of God put on flesh, Jesus Christ walked this earth, means that he stepped into our humanity, all of it. He, he stepped into our mess, if you will. He, he stepped into our humanity. He stepped into our humanity emotionally. The Bible tells us that Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died even though he was about to raise him from the dead. (laughs) He still still wept. He mourned the passing of Lazarus. He he stepped into our mess and our suffering. He stepped into it, it physically. Certainly physically Jesus suffered. He was beaten and whipped and tortured before being hung on a Roman cross to slowly suffocate under the weight of his own body, having his side pierced, by a Roman spear. Jesus knew physical suffering. But I think, in maybe the greatest suffering that there is, Jesus knew spiritual suffering. It's when Jesus cried out on the cross to God the Father and he said, Why have you forsaken me? It was because Jesus knew in that moment that God the Father, a holy and righteous God, would have nothing to do with him who had become our sin. When he took my sin and your sin, all of our junk on himself, he knew in that moment that he was completely alone and isolated. He experienced a a spiritual suffering that, that we can't imagine because he had been so united with God the Father since forever. In eternity, they were one and united. But in that moment, they were separated until, tell your neighbor, wait for it, until He rose from the dead, and he got up out of the ground. That was the conquering of all suffering. That's what he did. And so Jesus transcends the philosophical, and he makes it personal. This is what Romans chapter 8 says. When we think about why does God allow suffering, start here in Romans chapter 8. This is what the Bible says. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Isn't that fascinating that that's how the Bible chooses to describe suffering? Childbirth. Anybody want to help me preach that, ladies? (laughs) But this is a really significant passage. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Now, this is taking Romans chapter 8 is going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, God has created the heavens and the earth and everything that populates it. But in Genesis chapter 3, humanity chooses to walk away from the blessing of God, when God holds out life and hope and purpose and meaning and fulfillment, we have the choice to participate in that or not. And if we choose to walk away from that and step into death, purposelessness, sin, then God allows that. So we choose to walk into the blessing or the curse. And the curse of God, a lot of people will say, well, then why did God create us so that we could choose the curse? Why didn't he just make us so that we, didn't, we would never choose to sin? Great question. Great question. It's because of love. He created us because he loves us. He created us. For relationship and therefore he created us with a free will if we're created for love then it has to be our choice you see our choice to step into to respond to God's grace initiative creation itself was an act of grace and we choose to step into that or not but it is God's justice that allows the curse Is there a curse? Yes. But it is the alternative to the blessing. We must have free will if we're going to choose to love God back. He first loved us. This is a massive gift that God gives us the choice. He gives us the choice. He gives us choice because it's a relationship and when we choose the curse that is sin you see i really believe that for all of our technological advances and all that we do understand i think a lot of times we trivialize we minimize sin the Bible says that our sin grieves the heart of God, that it grieves God. Now, ultimately, God's judgment does involve the wrath of God, the anger of God, the righteous, pure and holy anger of God. That's real. But don't forget the grief. And when you understand the grief of God, I think, you, I think there's a deeper motivation to stay away from sin, You see, I think a lot of us, we are the product of of our Puritan and Catholic forebearers. That that like somehow God is just always mad. He's just just always hot off and looking for somebody to smite. And remember, judgment is real. The wrath of God is real, but I think the wrath of God reveals the heart of a good father because he knows that the the sin that we choose takes us away from the life that he offers, the blessing that he created us for. And when we choose that, I think as as a good father, he's like, no, no, why would you settle for anything less than what I created you for? You, you don't even understand how much I love you. Why would you settle for that when I offered you this? And, and when I understand the grief of God, I, I start to go, man, I, if, that, if it grieves God, I, I obviously don't want to make him mad, but if it grieves him, man, I, I, I want to choose life. I want to choose that which is real, that which satisfies that which is eternal sin always corrupts and costs more than we realize sin always corrupts and costs more than we realize it's a little white lie no it's not it's grieving the heart of God well it's just it's 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 just a tv show and they, they celebrate incest, but it's just a TV show. No, it's not. It grieves the heart of God. It, and and we, we step into and settle for so much less than we're created for. Here's where it gets personal. Look at verse 23 in Romans chapter 8. Now remember, all of creation has been groaning. Not only so, but we ourselves... Who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's Jesus. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That's the, the final return of Jesus. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we will wait for it patiently. This is the context for the verse that a lot of us know and have used before, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know, tell your neighbor, I know. I know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You see, our hope in Christ sustains us through our suffering. When we suffer, when we hurt, when we ache physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, we have this hope that it is not forever. Romans 8.35, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. This is the eternal perspective. Yes, this life can get hard. This life can be really, really tough. The Bible never minimizes suffering. It never says it's a figment of our imaginations. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have many troubles, You know what? You ought to encourage your neighbor right now. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you're going to have trouble. Now, some of you may not receive that right now. Some of us right now, man, things are great. Texas won. The economy's up. Unemployment is down. Just make it rain, baby. Jesus promises you will have trouble. It'll happen. But, he said, take heart. Literally, take courage. Do you know that courage comes from the same word that gives us heart? Core, heart. Take heart. Be courageous, for I have overcome the world. His resurrection proves he wins. He wins every single time. Now, there will be setbacks. There will be battles lost, but the war is won. This is the hope that we have. When he rose from the dead, he promised us and proved we could trust him. I want to go back to a verse that I did not read to you at the very beginning. Check this out. Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Now, if we are children... Of God and Christ, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, If you're not familiar with the life of the Apostle Paul, you might be tempted to say, what what does he know? Well, just for openers, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked and left for dead, he was abandoned by people he trusted and loved, he was not believed to be a real follower of Jesus, He was tortured. He was imprisoned. He had to work outside of the ministry to pay for the ministry. Paul was well acquainted with suffering. He he knew what he was writing about here. He, He wasn't just talking in abstract philosophical concepts. He was writing from the heart. The heart of one who knew suffering... And the heart of one who knew Jesus, he said, I, I've been through the ringer. So when he lists all these things, we have trouble, we have calamity, we're persecuted, we're hungry, we're destitute, we're in danger, threatened with death. No. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I don't know. For those of you who are here, we sang a song earlier in our service together. It said, I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder you're going to hear my praises roar. Up from the ashes hope will arise. Death is defeated. The king is alive. Death is defeated. The king is alive. This is our hope. Don't don't miss this. This stuff is real, y'all. This isn't theory. This isn't philosophy class. We can hang in philosophy class. But Jesus gave himself up for us. He participates in our suffering. He says, I am with you. And I will use it. It's real. It hurts. He's realer. And he heals. And he's invited you like he's invited me into a relationship with himself. To be made whole and complete. To experience him not just eternally, although that will happen. But also right here, right now when the days are good, bad, and ugly. He says, this is salvation, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him Will never die, but will have eternal life. I think a lot of times we think about eternal like that's what happens when we die, and it's true. I don't know if you've read the recent statistics that were released. The death rate amongst human beings is 100%, with one glaring exception. Jesus, the one who rose from the dead with the promise of a new life for anyone who would believe in him, a new life that starts here and now and reaches into eternity. I want to ask you to bow your head for just a brief moment. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that hope, that promise, why not right now? Why not choose to believe him, to respond to his grace, and step into the blessing of his life, his hope, his truth, and his grace? That happens by making a decision. That begins with a choice to follow him, to trust him more than you trust yourself, and to step into that relationship. If you want to do that in this moment, then we invite you just to pray, just communicating from your heart to God's, silently pray something like this. In your own words, just say, Jesus, I need you. I choose to believe that you died for me, that you suffered for me, and with me, and that you rose from the dead, and I will follow you from this moment forward. I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness. And I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment. Because this moment is too big to just let it slide by. And as a church, we we want to help with what comes next. Because this is just the beginning. If that was your prayer, and so I want to ask you to do just a couple of things so that we can help you, so that we can come alongside. If that was your prayer, I want you to take out the program that we talked about earlier in the service and open it up to the Connect card inside. Just right now, quietly, just go ahead and open it up and start filling out that Connect card. Your name, contact information, And and just below that, you'll notice there's a place to indicate, I committed my life to Christ this week. If you'll complete that card, and then what you do, you'll see that it's perforated there along the fold, just tear it off, fold it up, and when we dismiss in just a minute, I want to ask you to hand that card to one of our ushers. They've got the cool blue LHC t-shirts on. Or you could stop and visit and just hand it to somebody at the hub outside underneath the front porch. But that will allow us to start a conversation to help. To help with what comes next. The second thing I want to ask you to do, if you would, as our heads are bowed for just another moment, would you just raise your hand? If you just prayed to receive Christ just raise your hand up high over your head for a second and hold it up as a physical statement of that spiritual commitment that you just made and know that you're surrounded by people who love you and want to help and our family tradition around here is you can go ahead and put your hands down but we're gonna put our hands together and tell you welcome home welcome home